With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of Charts at Billboard. Joining me, as always, is Billboard.com senior editor, Katie Atkinson. Hello, Katie. Hi there, Keith. How are you? Doing well, because today we have a little coming around again uh, segment with Hanson's Oh, man. You'll never forget those lyrics. It'll be with you for the next two days. Well... You'll hear all about Mbop in just a second, uh, because the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. Andrew will be discussing the 20th oh my God. <laughs> anniversary of Hanson's classic Mbop single, along with Billboard contributor Dan Weiss and spin writer Anna Gatza. <sighs> so stay tuned for that in just a few moments. Mbop. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode, and give us a rating or review while you're at it. If you have any questions for us, feel free to tweet us at Keith underscore Caulfield or KT Atkinson. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, and why the heck would you not, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. So I kind of can't believe that it's been 20 years since Mbop. It just went by and just a, in an Mbop, it's gone. <laughs> in an Mbop, it's gone. <laughs> mm. It's, I, it's uh, I, I don't know, it ages me, I suppose. Cause I still want to think of them as being the exact same age as they were when Mbop came out. We were look, we, <laughs> Katie and I were looking at the ages of the Hanson brothers now, and I'm like, they're all still incredibly young. The oldest one is 36, Isaac. He's actually 22. Well, yeah. In he, real life, is that what you're saying? He's, he's only 22 now. He was a two-year-old on the drums right. 20 years ago. Is that Zach on the drums, obviously, Keith? Yeah. Uh, no, but it is, it is crazy how it's been 20 years. Um, because because I'm you know the chart guy, um, I looked up, of course, Mbop's chart history. It spent three weeks at number one on the Hot 100 back in 1997. Spent 22 weeks on the chart, and it was the first of three top 20 hits uh, from Hanson's uh, debut album. Uh, no, not their debut album. They had two top ten hits from their, their breakthrough debut album. album. Their breakthrough album. Mbop. And then they had I Will Come to You. Mm. But man, that Mbop. But Mbop. But Mbop. <laughs> well, we're going to hear all about Mbop in just a second. Yes, we will, because now here is Coming Around Again. Mm-hmm. 
Hello, and welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's podcast celebrating notable anniversaries in the music world. Today we're going to be discussing Hanson's Mbop, which was released as a single 20 years ago last week, and became one of the most iconic pop songs of the 90s pretty much instantly. So we're going to talk to a couple Hansonites in this episode about the band and their signature song. First up, we got uh, my former co-writer at Spin and Styles Magazine and current uh, freelancer extraordinaire, Dan Weiss. What's up, Dan? Hey there. What's up? Hey, so uh, so we actually had you basically pulling double duty on the Hanson beat last week uh, for the for the extended Billboard family. You wrote uh, something for Stereo Gum, kind of your your own twenty year remembrance of the song and kind of what makes it interesting. And uh, you also wrote something for Billboard uh, Billboard.com about the eleven best songs that the band did that aren't in Bop. So we're, we're going to talk about both of those at least a little bit. But first, uh, I wanted to you know take it back to nineteen ninety seven and ask you. Uh, do you remember you know, generally what your first impressions were of the band when you heard them? You know, they kind of they kind of came out of nowhere. At the beginning of nineteen ninety seven, the single was released in April. And I think by by May it was number one. Uh, so, what was it like for you at the time? What, what were your opinions of the band? You know, right away. Right, right. I mean, um, I don't even know if I could like trust my opinion at the time because I'm sure, like, as like a kid, like I probably thought it was like corny or something. I don't think I had like a very like strong opinion of it i just remember i mean at the time it felt like everything uh that came out in 1997 was out of nowhere like you know smash mouth was out of nowhere trumble Wumbo was out of nowhere but what what set hansen apart was just that that earnestness uh you know i mean they were kids uh they uh i don't know they, they just had this like sincere emotional like completely devoid of of irony thing uh going on that that sort of I guess like made people uh listen up and really feel I don't know like I guess that they kind of made it clear that there was a void in, in pop at the time of this kind of just totally like earnest uh heartthrobby uh I guess at the time this is uh, what passed for teen pop too but yeah. I guess we'll, we'll talk later about what that became yeah, for sure. And you know, we, we talked a little bit about this uh, on the podcast last week. We were talking about the, the Third Eye Blind self-titled album and uh, about just how kind of 1997, nobody really knew what was going on in rock. And that kind of extended to pop, too, because for a few years there in the mid-90s, like rock basically was pop. You know, there were pop stations that you know, were basically playing alternative rock as their core musical format. And then, yeah, you, you talked about this in your piece about how about how Canson kind of came and you know, even though other bands were, were sort of going in the pop direction, they still kind of had one foot in, in the sort of irony of the alt-rock 90s, and they, they were still trying to be a little bit edgy and kind of feign at, like, a, a greater, like, underground purpose. But here comes Hanson, and, you know, they, they hit immediately with this absolutely, like, gigantic pop hook, and then the chorus that, you know, it probably goes down as, if, if not the, like, one of the, the biggest and most instantly recognizable courses of the entire decade, really. And uh, it's, yeah, it sort of changes the direction of where pop music was going at the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's not even like like that someone like Matchbox 20 was trying to like be cool or something, but there was just this dark undercurrent with like virtually everything in the 90s just because people were so accustomed to, to grunge and to just uh, to sort of having having negativity be a a lasting thing in the culture and uh, and I guess because the counterculture kind of became the culture at the time like you know everything alternative that was you know not uh, visible in the 80s became the, like everything that was visible in the 90s so uh, with Hanson it was weird because they still looked very alternative like they're these long haired kids wearing flannel uh, who are teenagers and like you could they could have easily been in like the Lemonheads or something <laughs> but then they're singing this, uh, this song that sounds like you know uh, like the Jackson 5 
Cooper uh, or, or something like like Steve Miller or yeah. Jackson Brown. So you, like it was just this classic rock pop band. Yeah, you, you had the line in your piece, which actually I think this was the piece you wrote for Billboard, but you, you called uh, the, the, the quintessential uh, Hanson sound was Jackson Brown meets Jackson 5, which uh, I was actually kind of jealous I didn't think of myself because it's, it's pretty right on. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, someone pointed that out to me, and like I, I, I said it because of those two things, but I didn't even notice the Jackson thing, even though normally <laughs> I do play off things like that. But I didn't actually notice that at the time. So well, you know, it worked out for the best, certainly. And, and yeah, <laughs> and your, your, your piece, uh, your stereo gum anniversary piece, kind of gets at. I think the most interesting thing about the song, which we've already sort of touched on, which is that, you know, it was this obviously massive pop song, and I think it's probably one of the first songs people even think of when they think of pop from this era. But it was kind of like indie and alternative in its construction. I, I was, you know, watching some old videos of theirs, including the the Umbop video, and I, I was I was shocked by like, yeah, how baggy their clothes were, and how they. In one video I was watching, there there was an MTV interview, and the interviewer asked them like what their favorite bands or the artists they really liked were, and the first they mentioned were the Spin Doctors and Blues Traveler. Uh, so yeah, yeah, there, which makes sense. Yeah, so there, there was that on the one hand, and then there was also. Uh, the the uh the fact that like despite the the upbeatness and poppiness of the the chorus hook uh the lyrics are actually like very kind of dark and and you know almost fatalistic in a way uh, and you you compared them in your piece to artists like Typo Negative and Mount Erie which I think not a lot of people usually put in conjunction with Hanson but why don't you talk about that a little bit why, why you see the lyrics of that song kind of being in more of that like super heavy vein than than people maybe know from having heard it a couple times Right, right. Well, it's, it's interesting because, like, with, with kids, I feel like there's something about the fact that they were kids that kind of gets at this, like, this simplicity that that an adult might not be able to, like, put into such a concise uh, statement. Uh, but the kids have a way of kind of just surprising you with saying something that's, like, so simple and profound or something. And, and this song was sort of like an extension of that. Like, it's funny because they, they almost played down in a lot of ways uh, that they were kids, and and the, mm-hmm. the album itself, like, uh, you know, it's as as I said in the piece, like it sounds more like Blues Traveler, or The Wallflowers, or something, which which were clearly big influences on them. You know, these sort of like adult rock bands at the time. But uh, but yeah, the 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 sentiment itself. Uh, I mean, yeah, they're talking about death. <laughs> they're talking about things going away. It, it's so bizarre, uh, you know, because hey, I guess. It's both like it's it's unusual and not unusual because yeah, at the time there were lots of bands on the radio who, who were talking about death and you know and, and we had just seen you know like we we had lost Kurt Cobain who was a huge rock icon and just lots of uh, you know death was always sort of in the conversation in '90s rock but the way that they came at it was from this highly uncynical place like there's this really you know it's weird to call it like a positive place but it's it was very. Uh, you know, hang on to what you've got. Really care about it in the moment. So yeah, it, it's really it's negative to put it that way. To, to open your song saying that you're only going to have a couple of relationships in this life that will last. But uh, you know, the exuberance of the chorus and and everything, and, and also the, the genius of turning this uh, this bit uh, of automatopoeia, you know, um ba do ba do ba or whatever. Like it's uh, to which started out as a backing vocal, apparently. Like, they were trying to write some kind of backing right, yeah. vocal for, I guess, another song, and, and they realized this was its own thing entirely. Uh, to, to actually give that a meaning inside the song, that's really, really brilliant. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, uh, 
Yeah. I, I remember seeing interviews with them after the fact, uh, like, like well after the fact, where they kind of expressed uh, irritation that more people didn't understand the meaning of the song or didn't understand what an mbop was or anything like that. But uh-huh. this version of mbop, whose who, who's, uh, 20th anniversary we're celebrating last week, uh, it wasn't the first version of the song. It wasn't even the first version of the song to be commercially released. There was a there was a version of the song that appeared on like a demo album of theirs that was released a year before and it was actually called Mbop, the the, the demo collection and uh, the the indie album, I guess. And you know the song it's it's very different in a lot of ways. It's much slower. It, it's much uh, you know it, it's much less polished, obviously. Uh, and you know the Dust Brothers, who were the, the production duo behind uh, the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, and Bex Odelay, uh, they came along and they really kind of snazzed it up a little bit, and they did a whole bunch of things to it. Like you know they they added some cowbell and they added some kind of like '90s wiki wiki scratch effects, and some of that hasn't dated so well. But I think the most important thing that they did with the song is that they actually made the lyrics less identifiable. Like you, you, they made it harder to understand what they were actually saying in the song. Because, you know, the, the, Taylor Hansen's singing kind of sped up and he, his enunciation isn't great to begin with. So, you, you know, when you're talking about the first lines of that song being so dark, you know, I heard that song, I don't know, several hundred, maybe thousand times in 1997. I could not have told you uh, to save my life what those lyrics actually were. That's why I think that the Dust Brothers actually did Hansen a favor by making their song harder to understand. Uh, does, that, does that jibe with, with your kind of opinion yeah. of the song? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the most notable difference, yeah, between those versions is that the, the earlier one was slowed down, or it was slower, and the, the Dust Brothers just helped them realize that even though this is, like, a kind of, like, morbid song, that it is a pop song and, and deserves to be upbeat and have this breakbeat under it and uh, and scratching and stuff. And, and I think that, I mean, this is probably, like, a pattern, especially around, like, 1997, where, you know, like you mentioned, like, Third Eye Blind, I mean, that song, like, you, you know, mentions like it, it talks about using drugs and crystal meth the sure. way that like a tarantino movie would but, but you know he's sort of wrapping it almost so fast that uh people would also miss that if he didn't so like gleefully discuss it in interviews uh and and with hansen yeah i mean uh he had this uh, this high voice i don't know if it like officially had like changed yet from puberty or whatever but uh but it was it was a little difficult to uh to make out the words themselves as opposed to the syllables and yelps that he was uh that he was, you know, making, and yeah, I think that I think it benefited from that uh, a lot uh, because yeah, it's just this, you know, I mean, I think to some people it was a negative, you know, this mindlessly happy tune that that, that annoyed the shit out of them, uh, but um, but yeah, it was, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, a- any song I think benefits from sounding, you know, commercially from sounding more like a pop song of the day or whatever, but also like musically. Uh, you know, those chords are like kind of happy chords. Like there's a really sad, you know, tinge to them, but uh, but to, for the most part, like they worked really well with like a bouncy, funkier beat. For sure, yeah. And you and I have kind of talked about this as well, that, uh, you know, even though Hanson were kind of in more of in an alternative mold than I think people probably remember, uh, their their massive success and just what a, what a huge runaway hit this album was, uh Kind of signaled to to you know the, the 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 pop infrastructure that people were ready for music like this again, and so but between them and the Spice Girls, who were the other really big pop group in 1997, uh, they they kind of you know it was sort of year zero for pop music all over again because you know the, the alternative year had sort of run its course, and now we were ready for the next big thing, which of course ended up being uh, you know the TRL era with with boy bands and and you know, Backstreet Boys and Sync, and then the, the, the female pop stars like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. Uh, 
you don't see Hanson necessarily being part of that lineage, right? But but you do think that that you know it, it was made possible because of their success. Yeah, I mean, like I guess, like in a technical sense, they're part of it. It's weird because they're they're just such a they're the ultimate like transitional act for this because uh, because yeah, like, like I said, like they look like you know like the Lemonheads or like Nirvana fans or something, but the, you know they didn't really get like uh, you know any particular haircut or anything for the Umbop video. They just kind of put on what looks very much like the clothes they wore to the set. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, and you know, it sounds like from what you can hear from the original Umbop demo, like not a lot was changed from their original thing other than just cleaning it up, making it faster. Like it wasn't, you know, Dust Brothers didn't like completely change what they were uh, so much. And, and the album itself, even though it has like turntable scratching and stuff, it's very much like a roots rock record. It sounds like someone who's listening to Blues Traveler. But the thing is, at the time, uh, this was like the closest thing to teen pop, uh, you know, before uh, Britney and Backstreet and everything came in. So it's it, it's really jarring to listen to it now and hear like, I guess, like, I, I don't know if there's actual like Hammond B3 on the album, but it sounds like, it, it seems like there is. And, uh, and to just have those uh, these things of like Blues Traveler, Counting Crows, like things that were sort of on adult rock radio at the time, that this is considered a teen sensation. And especially when you listen to, uh, you know, the stuff that they're making now, it makes uh, a lot of sense that this is what they've become. You know, uh, sort of a, a soul rock band. And, and I mean, you could if you were gonna. If you, if you squint a little bit, you can see that the, the Hootie and the Blowfish were maybe like the real, real, real predecessors of this, but Hanson were the first ones who made it sort of a boy band uh, thing. Yeah, they, they, were, they, um, weren't putting, they weren't putting Darius Rucker in like the Teen Beat magazines, I don't think, for better or worse. Right, uh, right. So, so yeah, uh, you know, obviously they had, you know, maybe a, a shorter cultural moment in the sun than, than people would have expected. But I'm, I'm curious. I, I, w- I was looking this up um, you know, before we talked today. And if you had to guess, how many hits on the Hot 100 would you say that Hanson had total throughout their career? Now, not top 10 hits or top 40 hits, but just anything on the Hot 100. What, what number would you anything guess? Anything on the Hot 100? Um, see, I, I haven't actually looked at the charts, in it, but I know they've got like a pretty fierce cult. So I would say like that, that cult's probably given them maybe like four or five. It's only three, actually. The only which, which for me seems an absurdly no, low number. I mean, obviously, Mbop was was their biggest hit, but I, I remember I remember that album lasting a year, a year and a half, just just still being everywhere. I remember actually, even though they weren't part of the TRL era as, as we think of them, I remember the the very first uh, episode of that show, which I think was was only called Total Request at that time. That uh, weird, which was like the third or fourth single off that album, was the number one video on that on that debut episode. So it's surprising to me that uh, that they that they never that they, you know they left such a kind of a small thumbprint in terms of the charts of the era, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's it's weird because I think that I think it's it's hard to not like to, to actually remember them as some kind of like I don't think they're actually considered a flop even though their sales w- would sort of say that because they've had such a smooth transition to, to still like they, they retained an indie fan base and they took control of their career so quickly like so like really really early in the 2000s they were already recording on their own label and, and they just definitely you know did not want to be part of I guess the the industry stuff and then compromises and such like from 
from an early, and the fact that they were already making these indie recordings as kids anyway probably helped the fact that they felt they could do it on their own. So I think that they kind of opted out before they could actually fail, in a sense. Yeah. Um, and, and they were already doing things on their own terms, like, so quickly. Like, it was only really the first album and maybe the second one where, uh, where they were having to deal with what I guess, like, unimaginable pressures of, of a teenage pop group would have to deal with. So uh, I think that that's part of why they, they've mostly managed to kind of turn it into a success story, even though, um, even though yeah, they haven't really been on the Hot 100 since uh, since the first album. Or, or maybe since, since 2000, I think the, the, uh, the title track to this time around uh, you know, made a cameo. Right. But yeah, so uh, you know, I was listening to a bunch of their albums today, and, and you know, I've, I've heard songs here and there from their, from their last 20 years. Uh, and they, they're all—they're always consistently surprising in how good they are. They, they definitely sound like a, a fully realized band. They definitely sound like a band that knows who they are and, and you know has studied at the hands of some of the you know the, the classic songwriting greats. And that they're they're pretty good at keeping the legacy alive themselves. And so you you talked about some of these songs, uh, some of the, the highlights from the latter part of their career uh, in your own article that you wrote for for Billboard about you know the ten, the eleven best songs of theirs that aren't Mbop. Uh, why don't you kind of pick a couple of those that that you were the most fond of, and 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 talk about like what made them cool and what what kind of showed different sides of them that people might not know uh, from if they only know them from Umbop and those early singles. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, the walk was in two thousand four, and uh, and I was uh, dating someone at the time who, who kept up with Hanson a little better than I did, and uh, and she played some of that, and I remembered that song Running Man stuck out to me. Mm-hmm a lot because it had a riff and it was a little more uh, of, uh, of just kind of like a straight ahead like rock and roll song than they normally do uh, and uh, and yeah it kind of it had that same kind of like uh, indie Billy Joel kind of sound that, that Spoon has uh, has really like fine-tuned over the last like 10 years I and mean, it's really funny how uh, now like you know I think I've mentioned this in the piece but like Hanson probably <laughs> tell us if Spoon's uh, record sales uh, <laughs> at this point and, and it's impossible to imagine that when, like, you know, Spoon came out with, like, a series of sneaks and was getting dropped by Matador. Yeah, not, not many people have taken that bet. Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, Running Man is a, it's a really, uh, it's a fun, unexpected uh, song. He, he sing, uh, I think it's Taylor sings really well on it. Um let me think what else. Uh, well, I definitely want to hear you talk about uh, about yearbook a little bit, even though that that was uh, yeah. that was that was from the first album, but it's still a pretty pretty much a world removed from the singles. So why don't you talk about the, the weird deep cut that is yearbook? Right, right, yeah. I mean, yearbook is uh, is far and away my favorite Hanson song. Uh, I think that you know it, it benefits from uh, things that that were sort of not just the fact that they were like this really confident. Uh, band of songwriters, but also that sort of extra dimension of, of their age at the time where, uh, you know, and I almost feel like uh, middle of nowhere, I, w- I wish that it did more of this, because it, it doesn't really write about, uh, or they didn't really write about the experience of being kids too much, but yearbook uh, is almost like, I mean, like, I, I can't think of like a specific uh, analogy for like a show from the Disney Channel that would have had an episode like this where, where someone is doing like a whodunit to find <laughs> Maybe even Pete and Pete, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, I could totally see like on um, the adventures of Pete and Pete sure. and doing an episode to find the kid who disappeared from the yearbook. But that's what the song is like. It makes a whole uh, episode long, uh, you know, melodrama out of where the, this kid from their class disappeared. And it's so funny. And, and, it, and it's really you know, musically effective 
it's it's incredible the way that he you know tailors things it totally earnestly this really like slow pulsing uh ballad you know it starts out and you think it's going to be like no doubt like don't speak uh or or dream on by aerosmith or something and and, you know and then it's slowly like it comes out that it's you know just where did this kid uh johnny from uh from his class go like it's just this weird little kid noir yeah at the same time so brilliant uh and then it's just uh, you know, musically, it just builds and builds, and it's got this, like, gorgeous uh, breakdown with, you know, the, the group, like, layered to sound like a, a choir or something. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like, um, you know, that there were a lot of, you know, risks that they really should have, like, taken. Like, it's a so- like middle of nowhere is a solid record, and, and they're not really, like, a risk band. Like, they're, they're ultimately just kind of, like, a good time, like, pop rock band. But it would have been really cool uh, to see them develop that side of themselves. And, and it's weird because, uh, yeah, apparently they hadn't even played that song live uh, until the 10-year anniversary of that record. So you can tell that it really wasn't like their priority to, to do things like this. But, uh, but it really shows a side of them that never fully developed. Uh, and it's uh, and it's really fascinating to listen to. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I was I was stunned by this song when I was listening to it. Uh, you know, earlier this week, and you know, it's kind of like their take on like a Diane Warren power ballad almost. But it's yeah, it's got these kind of noirish elements. It's it's very strange. My my one problem with the song is that you know you you're you talking about like how it's it's cool to hear them talking about normal kid experiences. They weren't really normal kids. I mean, they were they were homeschooled, so I, I don't know what they even know about yearbooks or like passing kids in the hallways or anything like that. So that that's that's a little a little suspect. But regardless, right, right. We'll, we'll, we'll give them a pass on that one. Yeah, I mean that almost makes it like even funnier because like the fact that like you know for normal kids they, this would not be like a weird occurrence for someone to just disappear from the yearbook. <laughs> but but the people who didn't experience yearbooks, maybe that's even funnier. Yeah, the, the yearbook envy of Hanson. All right, thank you so much. Uh, Dan Weiss, freelancer, available for weddings and bar mitzvahs. Thanks for coming on the line, Dan. Thank you. Welcome back to Coming Around Again. We're still talking about Hanson's Mbop 20 years on. Next up, making our debut podcast appearance, we have spin staff writer Anna Gatza. Are you excited, Anna? I am thrilled. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, so you wrote and did a, a really fun interview with Hanson that you did at uh, South by Southwest, uh, I guess last month, and you talked about their career and their early days and kind of what it's like to still be together as a band, a band of brothers after 20 years. Uh, but before we talk about that, I kind of want to get your, your background history with Hanson. So they were one of your, your first CDs, is that right? I got three CDs for Christmas in probably the third grade, and it was Britney Spears, 98 Degrees, and Hanson. Esteemed company fantastic encapsulation of a time period um but that Hanson CD was not their debut album Middle of Nowhere it was their demos CD that even was, back then yes. you're, you're digging in the crates for, for I don't my aunt stuff. picked this for me I didn't pick this at all mm-hmm. um but yeah. yeah it was an interesting phenomenon because I'm sure that I had heard Bob the pop song but then I had the CD that had like the original sort of presented mm-hmm. packages being more authentic yeah, so you, you got Hanson kind of like as the pure songwriters without all of the, the kind of the teen pop window dressing. And, and were, you, were you a fan of Hanson kind of stripped down and unplugged sort of? Um, you know, as a kid, I, I'm sure I loved the pop and bop battle. <laughs> it was, that song was made for like children to love. For sure. But uh, I mean, 
by the time, you know, if you're getting them their CD bundled with CDs from Britney Spears and 98 Degrees, then it basically means that pop has already kind of moved on from Hanson. So, I mean, was this something that, like, you like kids your age were listening to at the time still? You're, you're a couple years younger than I am, and I'm, I'm curious because I was, I was on the young end for, for Hanson fans at the time. For people who are even younger, I, like, I, did this band already seem like a relic by the time that, that, that Britney and Backstreet came along? Um... I think you have your chronology off because to me, the Backstreet Boys were so old that I didn't even know about them. Wow, they were really? Ancient. Yeah. They were, they were already old like, news at that point. <laughs> like, NSYNC were, NSYNC were still current. But Backstreet Boys, I was like, I'm too young for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But, but so when you know, this opportunity presented itself 20 years later, are, were you still a fan of the band or were you just doing it out of kind of intellectual curiosity? What, what made you want to talk to them at South By? Um, definitely more like intellectual curiosity and just seeing how... Like, everything else about them aside, it is sort of impressive that three people who are siblings could still like each other and still be excited to write music together Mm -hmm. so many years later, especially when you're not exactly an experimental or cutting edge, (laughs) um, you know, talents. Right, yeah. They they still find that there's, there's value there to draw from. Yeah, and definitely not what you would think of as a traditional South by Southwest band either. Although, I guess if you talk to them, they, 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 they come off like they're, you know, they, they think they're South by Old Salts by now. They're like, oh, yeah, we, we're here every year. And we, uh, because that's did, part did they of seem their... like, like, kinda like they, were, they were holding court when you talked to them? Um, no, they're pretty chill mm-hmm. dudes. I mean, it's a little, it is a little bit, there's three of them and there's only one of me. So like, you know, <laughs> the, the conversation balance is obviously mm-hmm. a little off in that respect. But they, you know, they don't seem... Um, you know, they have a very, what seems like a very self-conscious, keeping it real persona. Um, and did, did they, they seem at home at South by Southwest? Or did it seem like conspicuous at all for them to be there among all these kind of up-and-coming indie bands? They do seem a little conspicuous because they're so well-groomed. <laughs> and, there's, and again, there's there's three of them, and, you know, you can kind of tell they're related. And even if you don't know it's Hanson right away by looking at them, they just, they have that thing where if you saw them on the sidewalk, you'd be like, that's a rock band. Oh, really? So they, they still kind of have that aura about them 20 years later, even as they did they, they, they. They've kind of it's progressed the, into their 30s. It's the, jack- the jackets and the jewelry, mm-hmm. and you just you don't see, um, you know, most people, at, most bands at South by like you know just rolled out of their van in a t-shirt. Sure. Are they still like dreamy? Um, this is <laughs> something we've discussed. Oh yeah, privately hotly debated. Um, well, when I was a kid in third grade, like Taylor Hansen, all the way, I thought he was the cute one. Sure. Um, these days. Personal opinion: Zach Hansen is really the more attractive of the three. But. Zach's overtaken Taylor on the leaderboard. <laughs> that, that, that's funny. You know, uh, we were talking with our, our producer Joey earlier, and, and he, he he mentioned that like, oh yeah, Hansen like like they were all like really good looking kids at the time, and I was like, well, kind of, but like really, it was only Taylor because you know Zach was kind of going through that 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 awkward phase, and Isaac was like super young. Am I mixing it up? Actually, it was Isaac? you're mixing it up. Zach yeah, is the sorry. young one. Yeah, so like. Zach to was, me, Zach to me, in thir- my third grade perspective was it like Taylor was a cute one, Isaac was a little bit more in the awkward sure. pubescent stage, and then Zach was like so young he was like you know my kid brother. But now twenty years later, they've kind of they've kind of leveled off. <laughs> they're all in their thirties now. Plus, yeah. they're all married, so this whole discussion is moot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, when you talk to them, they seem to kind of want to pronounce their own like normalcy they, they, they seem to be very much like this is who we are this is who we've always been there's, there's even a line where they say to you in, in the interview that that you should search out their old interviews because they, they promise that they're exactly the same does that match up with your kind of perception of them now versus then 
I didn't seek out any of their interviews that they did as children. <laughs> I imagine not all of those are even online. Uh, I would bet um, that Zach is, is a little bit less hyper these days, at the very least. They're all they're all very talkative and friendly, and they really okay. they bounce off each other, and they don't like they don't interrupt each other until they really get excited. They've definitely been on a number of press junkets before. Mm-hmm. So, grooming tips aside, do they all do they kind of seem like just like normal dudes at this point? Um, no, because they don't have normal jobs and normal lives. That's true. And so, one of the things I was like made a point of asking them is what would your careers be if you were not doing this and i think most of us have sort of a backup career in mind even mm-hmm. if we've been in, you know satisfied in our job for years and years like we're sort of like this is what i would go back to school to study or like and hansen are not regular yeah, guys like that. that they have they maybe have some ideas about what they would be doing were they not doing this but it's not like you know they have a, a backup career or an alternate set of plans yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that I think has kind of continued to buy them a good amount of goodwill over the years is that they do seem very sincere in that, like, the music is the thing and that, like, this is all they are, this is all they can do. And, you know, despite the fact that they were, you know, teen pop sensations and usually with that kind of comes the, the connotation of being, like, prepackaged or somehow calculated, they basically just say, look, this is who we are. We're a brother's band. We play music. We, we love music, and, and we, we still love playing it. And there's even, a, like, I think maybe the funniest part in your interview is where the, uh, I think Zach relates, uh, like, a conversation he had with John Popper, a blues traveler, a number of years ago. We actually talked a lot about blues traveler in the first part of this interview. I guess blues traveler and Hanson are more, more closely linked than you'd think. But uh, where, where John Popper basically says to them, like, like you guys should sell your own lunchboxes. Like, why wouldn't you do this? You can make a lot of money. And they're like, well, you know, we, we could, I guess. But, like, we don't do that. We're not that kind of band. Which is still, like, to them it seems so normal. But to me it is still insane that, like, a 12- and 14-year-old would even have a, a grasp on what. Yeah, what, like artistic integrity. Like, or, what artistic integrity, you know, what what serious, quote-unquote, or, like, committed bands do or do not do. Because you don't understand that at 12. At 12, you want to buy the lunchbox. Yeah, they may want one for, them, for, the, for themselves. If they don't want to sell it, they might, they might need it to, to you know, for, for, their, for their home lunching. But it does seem like the teen pop thing, not that they shouldn't have started so young because it's their lives and I can't tell them what to do, but sure. it does seem like the teen pop was, like, a fluke or, like, a detour. Mm-hmm. And if they had developed as a more normal band and broken through at a more traditional age that they would maybe be in that blues traveler realm of like stuff your dad likes. Yeah. They'd be takes, playing yeah. Whatever, whatever the modern day equivalent of the Horde festival is with, with blues traveler and bare naked ladies and, uh, and, and bands like that. Yeah. Or a band like a band like bare naked ladies where you don't think about them, but you also haven't forgotten them. Sure. You don't take them seriously, but like if you ended up their show, you wouldn't be mad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and they've transitioned into adulthood in a way that's kind of – it's interesting because, you know, they never, you know, they never had scandal. They never had any kind of media blowups, uh, and, and they, they never did anything that, like, was, like, a, a conscious, like, shunning of their earlier selves, their earlier careers, earlier music, anything like that uh, – what you get is these kind of uh, like like half measures things like you know in, in in your interview they make kind of a PG rated sex joke about how they enjoy like practice procreating. They're very PG rated, and I mm-hmm. I like we didn't talk about it in the interview, but I do have the sense just coming off them that they're like Christian, mm-hmm. and that that's I would imagine part of what has kept their family bond so close and kept them like working together and um, you know something that's brought them together. Yeah. Over all this time. Not Mormon, though. They, they go to great, great lengths to point <laughs> they out they're, they in fact, they're not, not Mormon. Mormon. But, and, that, and that's another interesting thing about them when you talk about uh, their family. Is that you never really hear 
uh, as part of the Hanson origin story, like the parents don't really play that large of a role. I mean, they'll, they'll always say like, yeah, our, our parents helped instill our work ethic, or you know, our, our parents have been very supportive, but they, they don't they don't play the role of like the domineering child star parents that you kind of expect with kids that get so famous at such a young age. I don't know how to separate whether how much of that is a very smart, compelling press story <laughs> versus how much of that could be true because you also imagine that after Mbop, like just a few years after, I'm sure they had people in their ear being like, you need to reboot. Sure. You need to try something else. And we can all think of, you know, teen stars who attempted comebacks and, you know, saw really unfortunate, embarrassing results and they didn't fall prey to that, which means they had the wherewithal to say no. Mm -hmm. Um, And you wonder if that same strategy is like how they handled their parents and were like, this is what we're doing. You know, you can't tell us what to do, just support us, or whether there's some other kind of story that they're yeah. just covering with that story. And that, that's entirely possible, but at the very least, you, you don't hear anything about, like, you know, I remember, you know, when Justin Bieber got really famous, you would hear stories of his super religious mother kind of, and not, not necessarily hectoring him, but kind of, like, staying on him to keep along the righteous path, and she, was, she you know, she got upset at some of, the, like, the, 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 the people that, she, that he worked with early in his career, and some of the some of the decisions that he made. Uh, and you know, maybe that's just a result of, you know, the media being so much more pervasive in, in 2010 than it was in 1997. But uh, Hanson kind of did well, I think, to sort of, you know, keep keep their family separate from, despite the fact that they are a family act, they did a good job of, of making the, their music the story as opposed to, like, what was going on in their, in their personal situation. And so you get some of that narrative with, like, Katy Perry, too, sure. of, like, yeah. a religious person who, like, left the faith and had family pushback from it Mm -hmm. and that's why i think that maybe the subtext of the hansen story is that they didn't leave the faith that i imagine they still all go to church together it's entirely possible with with their 12 little ones in tow with their 12 their collective 12 children i think the first one the the, the last one actually came out last year even they still still make headlines whenever whenever they get a new kid you say came out like it's an (laughs) album that kid dropped last year it's Uh, a child Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, do you think that Hanson have any kind of particular relevance to, to, to music in 2017? Is there is there a band that you see kind of either creating their model musically or, or following down their general career path? Or like, like who's the who's the living embodiment of the Hanson spirit in 2017, if there is such a thing? That's hard to say, but just because they're on in the news this week, like Haim leaped to mind okay. as another example of a, of a sibling trio and not, but Haim would be an example of someone who they didn't come break through as child stars. Like they're not like smoosh. They <laughs> like they waited until a more traditional age. They probably were more fully developed as people and as songwriters, um, and have certainly a more adult audience. And they've mm-hmm. captured this audience that will probably stick with them in a way that the mob audience, you know, the number one hit audience, did not stay through to the present day. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we were talking about it on the earlier part of the podcast about how you know their their Billboard fortunes fell off kind of very quickly, very precipitously. Uh, but they do still have you know they, they still sell out shows pretty much wherever they go. It seems like I remember reading that they they caused a riot at a show a couple of years ago because you know too many people came to it. Uh, and I, I was actually I was I was you know, kind of messing around on YouTube the other day and I saw that. Uh, One Direction, in fact, have, have covered Mbop as kind of like a sound check at live shows. It's kind of like an interstitial uh, thing, like, oh, let's 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 pay it back to the legacy. Let, let, let's 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 let these kids know what Hanson was about back in the day, and then that makes that makes me happy. Uh, and perhaps the the, the the lasting legacy of, of Hanson in 2017 
is uh, Mhop. Their 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 recently released IPA, which is still along the same sort of lines of their kind of half step into adulthood, where it's like it would have been considered scandalous maybe as as kids for them to release their own beer, but uh, as adults, it, it seems like the kind of the safest, dangerous thing they can possibly do. Oh, this is absolutely one of the jokes I said in the interview is like, you know, we don't do anything bad, we don't do any drugs, we just drink beer, yeah. and it's like that is the edgiest, edgiest part of Hansen is that it's like an, AP, an IPA instead of like a regular ale. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not even like a, like a frat boy beer. It's like a, a beer for distinguished beer drinkers. So one of the parts of the interview that was cut because it was sort of a total digression. All oh, right, we're going to get in the outtakes. Yeah, let's have it. Is that I asked them to ex- talk to me, like explain the beer to me because I haven't tried it. So I mm-hmm. wanted them to sort of give me the rundown. And they talked about it as being like, it's like an everyday drinker. They like, they keep it on their tour bus so they can just head off stage, get in the bus, you know, crack open a beer. They want this mm-hmm. nice, mellow, like not not crazy, hoppy IPA. So, so the beer's mostly for their own consumption. If other people have And their festival, it, they have a festival. Right, the beer right, festival. Yes, the beer festival. Um, and I'm sure you can buy I need to try it. Somebody send me some, please. Um, right, well, to, to commemorate <laughs> you, you making your first ever podcast appearance, I, 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 you know, the, the next case is on me. Andrew, Andrew will buy me a Henson IPA. Um, but then I, after I talked to them, like the next week, I looked it up on Beer Advocate and it has – a pathetic rating. Oh, people really? think this beer sucks. Sorry, All right, well, Hansen. I'm sure there's a lot of people that think that Hans's music sucks, but you know they, they keep making it and they keep selling their IPA, and they seem to be uh, living a pretty good life. On they this are episode. no, they are living their dream, which is I'm happy it's still working for them. And then mm-hmm. you were saying they still sell out shows and stuff, and it's part of what they're selling is like the dream that nothing can change. Uh, that, that's that's a good note to end on. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Anna. It's been great. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.